Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, The Priceless Treasure of Jesus. So let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The World Needs a Hero. Every people group in history, every country, every culture, every race of humanity cherishes heroes. And we look for heroes, and when we find them, we celebrate them. And there's nothing wrong with that, because people need heroes. They need someone whose life inspires them to consider what's important. They need positive examples to push them forward. The nature of the heroes a culture cherishes tells us a great deal about who we are. Years ago, a man who was then quite famous, Henry Kissinger, said something quite insightful. He said, our age finds it difficult to come to grips with figures like Winston Churchill. The political leaders with whom we're familiar generally aspire to be superstars rather than heroes. And then Kissinger went on to explain what he meant. He said, superstars crave consensus. Heroes define themselves by their judgment of a future they see and it's their task to bring it about. He meant regardless of the costs that they would pay. You see, real heroes are not afraid to be unpopular. It's not popularity or the adulation of the crowds they care about. They care about doing that which was required, even if no one applauded. In our day, sadly, I think Kissinger is right. Superstars have replaced heroes, and that's true also in the church. Sometimes Christian people crave the superstar Christian leader, I mean, the one who's exciting and and attracts famous people, is able to present their church as the place where exciting people come. You see, we've replaced Athanasius, Chrysostom, Luther with superstars. Now, I know that's an overstatement. There are examples to the contrary. I could name a number of them. I'm going to refrain. But truth be told, the amount of superstar pastors as compared to heroic pastors, that's my point. We don't need stars at all. We do need heroes. Now, when we come to Hebrews chapter 3, we come to a chapter in which we're told to consider the faithfulness of Jesus. Jesus is, of course, our great hero. I mean, after all, he never acted out of the desire to be popular, but to be faithful to the will of his Father. And we should meditate on that faithfulness. Yeah, we have other examples of faithfulness in our Bible, but Jesus simply outshines them all. In our text, we're going to consider and contrast Jesus and Moses and why it is that Jesus' example far outstrips Moses, and that's why we make a focus of Jesus. Now, that was very important to ancient Jews. Remember, Hebrews is written to primarily a Jewish group of Christians who, because of persecution and other pressure, were contemplating leaving the Christian faith and returning back to their Judaism. And indeed, the ancient Jews thought that no one was greater than Moses. I mean, after all, Moses gave the people of Israel two tablets of stone on which God had written the law. I mean, up till now, we've been arguing that Jesus is greater than the angels, but a great many ancient Jews even argued that Moses was greater than the angels. I mean, after all, the angels were only intermediaries at the time of the giving of the law. Moses, in fact, gave the law to the people. And so the chapter we're about to read makes it clear that Jesus is greater even than the great Moses. So let's follow the argument. Hebrews 3, 1 to 6. 
Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So our text begins by addressing the Hebrew believers, and it calls them both holy brothers and those, along with the author, who share in the heavenly calling. So it's clear that the author thinks that the majority of his readers are genuinely saved, and for that reason, he's assured that they'll be on his side. So think of it this way. Let's say you go to a rally on something. Well, let's say it's a rally on saving whales. So a speaker gets up and he argues passionately, you know, about controlling the slaughter of whales and about opposing things that that cause their numbers to decline. Now, most people in the group are well on side, but the passionate speech is intended not to bring them on side, but to strengthen their resolve never to allow this issue to fade. And that's what we find in the book of Hebrews. The author is sure that all that's required with the majority of his readers is to passionately remind them of what a hero Jesus is. I mean, after all, he says, he's the apostle and high priest of your confession. Now, that word apostle, This is the only place in the Bible where Jesus is ever called the apostle. But here the word is not used, as many think of it, an apostle at least most of the times where it's used in the New Testament, it refers to the 12 that Jesus chose. But here the word is used in its technical sense. An apostle is someone who's sent. And that's what the reader is saying. Jesus is sent from God to you. And as our high priest, we know he was sent by God to take away your sins and make it possible to inherit the kingdom to come. So given how large Jesus looms on the horizon, you want to pay greater attention to him. You want to crystallize your focus, get rid of the distractions you sometimes suffer from. See, I can't help but wonder if the distractions the author is speaking about has to do with the fears that these believers had with the possibility that they might be persecuted. It's as if he says, focus now, don't be distracted. Now, the rest of the passage that we've read is in two sections. The first is the similarity between Jesus and Moses, and then after that, we're going to look at the contrast between Jesus and Moses. You know, not in the sense that Moses is a bad example, but rather that the superiority of Jesus is infinitely above that of Moses. So before I begin, let me deal with the so what argument that the listener might think of today. A modern listener might say, okay, I get it. You know, for the ancient Jewish Christians, the superiority of Moses over everything, well, that was clear to them, but we don't have that problem today. I don't think any modern-day Christians struggle with the idea that Moses might just be greater than Jesus. I mean, we know that Jesus is supreme, so if you spend time arguing for the supremacy of Christ over Moses, well, you know, our eyes might just glaze over. I mean, what's the point of studying this passage? So let me address that issue. First, let me address it from the point of view of Moses being the great lawgiver and the founder of the nation of Israel. 
See, we live in a day in which there are those that think law is indeed supreme. And so here's an example. I know of some Christians that are far more interested in law and in politics and in arguments about how the nation should be run, in arguments against political opponents, in social reform, in what's taught in schools, in what the media reports, and in challenging bad ideologies, and in who should be the leader of their nation than they are in Jesus. And you can see this everywhere. It's there in their conversation. Jesus is simply a means to serve that which is ultimate, that is their political agenda. The focus is on law and not on Jesus. And in that environment, the writer of Hebrews would have made the argument that Jesus is infinitely superior to your nation. And I can almost hear someone bristle. But why do you bristle? Is your nation greater than Israel? And even if it were, would it be superior to Jesus? So listen up. And here's something that was said to ancient Jewish Christians and see if it still applies to you today. So let's start with Moses and Jesus and compare their similarities. And I reread verse 2. Who, that is referring to Jesus, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So what's that verse saying? It's saying at the very least that both Jesus and Moses were faithful. That means that they were both true to the calling they had received. God the Father had charged them to do that which they did. Now, in reference to Moses, the passage says that he was faithful in all God's house. Now, that's a a direct reference to Numbers chapter 12. Now, in that chapter, of all people, Miriam, the sister of Moses, and her brother Aaron, also the brother of Moses, they began to speak against Moses, and they said, Has God only spoken to Moses? I mean, who does he think he is? And in response... The Lord comes down in a pillar of cloud and speaks directly to them. I'm reading Numbers 12, 6 to 8. And the Lord said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? That is, God speaks with Moses in a way that's superior to the way in which he has spoken with others. And furthermore, Moses was faithful in all God's house. Now, clearly here, the house is the house of Israel. Moses performed his duties so that when he was done, God was satisfied and delighted with him. That's what faithfulness means. Back to the Bible Canada exists to bring you into a transformative relationship with Jesus. And we're so encouraged to hear just how this is happening for those who listen to Dr. John's daily Bible teaching program. Kaylee recently shared, I am thankful for the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ written in God's holy word, taught by Dr. John Newfeld. The word is clearly taught and my walk with the Lord is deepened in him as I listen. If, like Kaylee, you've been impacted by this ministry or or someone you know has been impacted by it, we'd love to hear from you. Remember to touch base with us at 1-800-663-2425 or for more information about Back to the Bible Canada, go to backtothebible.ca.
Hebrews 12 verse 2 tells us a great deal about how the New Testament church viewed the First Testament and viewed Moses. Moses was faithful. That's what the New or the Final Testament says. He discharged the duty that God had given him, and God was glorified in Moses and in the giving of the law. And that's why Christian people today never denigrate the first 39 books of our Bible or relegate them to an irrelevant status. We know these books for what they truly are. They're the word of the living God, a word that never grows old. It's a word that's relevant to all people at all times. And it's something quite amazing to say that as Moses was faithful in all God's house, that is, in all that God commanded him to do, so also Jesus was faithful to that which God had appointed him to do. That is, when Jesus was on earth, he repeatedly explained his actions. John 6, 38, For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And that's what faithfulness looks like. When Moses was criticized, he took comfort in the fact that he was only doing what God called him to do. Same is true of Jesus. He also did what God called him to do. And in that sense, it's fitting that we do compare Moses with Jesus. Both were faithful. But if the writer of Hebrews had only ended there, to point out the similarity between Jesus and Moses, it would have been most misleading. Let me suggest a point of application. You know, I have in my lifetime been to a number of leadership seminars as well as classes, and many of those in stressing leadership principles or talk about how some of those leadership principles were done by Jesus. Well, they're also done by industry leaders, by coaches of sports teams, political world leaders. In other words, the best principles of leadership were also done by Jesus, they say. And I often marvel how many pastors simply sit there and say nothing. While it's true that Jesus exercised great leadership principles to simply leave it there, and that Jesus is a great example of what we're talking about, that's misleading at best. It's blasphemous at worst. So the writer of Hebrews moves from the similarity between Jesus and Moses to the contrast between Jesus and Moses. So look at this way. Let's say we're talking about architecture. And I say, look, my house is an example of architecture. That's true. And the Taj Mahal, that's an example of architecture as well. And what if I just left it there? Well, you'd shake your head. Yeah, they're both structures. But how do you draw a comparison without also pointing out the vast superiority of one over the other? And so we come to verses 3 to 6, the contrast between Moses and Jesus. And in verse 3, we begin with a point of comparison. So let's remind ourselves again of verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And that's the point of comparison, a house and its builder. I remember one time uh, years ago taking a tour through Los Angeles in which we were shown a number of Frank Lloyd Wright homes. Now, if that name doesn't ring a bell, that's okay. But, But if you're an architect, you know that name. It's very impressive. A Frank Lloyd Wright home is famous in the U.S. And if a house was designed and built by him, the very fact that it was built by him adds significant value to that house. You know, in that case, the builder has far more glory than the house that he made. But of course, in the case of Moses, the fact that he was faithful in God's house actually doesn't diminish Moses. He was an excellent servant in God's house, but that doesn't take away from the fact that Moses was no more than a servant. Again, let me say it. Moses' track record is not in question here. His greatness is not diminished by what's said about him, his trust in God. 
After what was a rough start, but his trust in God, his leadership in Israel, both in delivering the law and seeing that the law was implemented in Israel, his holding fast to that law in the midst of withering opposition, he was faithful. But Jesus is not a servant in God's house. Let me say it again. Jesus is not a servant in God's house. Jesus is the builder of God's house. And so as builders, Jesus has no equals. Even the great Moses himself pales in importance to this one who built the house. Now, when we say that Jesus built the house, what exactly are we saying? Well, the answer has to be that Jesus is the one who built the house of the people of God. So compare ancient Israel to the church. Israel was a physical nation which shared the same biological heritage. They were the direct descendants of Abraham, and although Israel received the law and the covenants, yet a great many in that nation were unfaithful to God. Some worshipped idols, others abused the poor, still others forsook their God in numerous ways, so much so that in the time of Elijah the prophet, he thought he was the last faithful man in the nation. And then God intervened and said, no, no, there are 7,000 others. Well, that's wonderful, but 7,000 in an entire nation, clearly, The faithful were vastly outnumbered by the unfaithful, so much so that by the time of Ezekiel, he calls Israel that rebellious house. But Jesus built a very different house. He's the builder of a house of those who have been redeemed by his own blood, the house of those who are saved, who for the sake of Christ have renounced the world, the flesh, and the devil. Israel as a nation was necessary in order for the church to be born. But Israel as a nation contained a part of the house of God. But even in Israel, there were those of other nations that clung to the God of Israel, like Rahab the prostitute and Ruth the Moabitess and Naaman the Syrian. But all of that was preparation for the house of the redeemed taken from every nation and tongue and tribe and race. The one who built that house, that was Jesus. How in the world can you compare a faithful servant in the house of Israel with the architect of the global house of God, the faithful saints, the holy brothers and sisters who share in a holy calling? So let's go to verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God, it says. Now, first, we might wonder why this verse is here, but in my Bible, this verse has actually been placed in between brackets to indicate that it's an explanatory verse. That is to say that while Jesus did build the house, it was God the Father who planned our salvation, and then it's God the Son who affected the Father's plans. And the writer of Hebrews writes verse 4 simply to remind us that when Jesus built the house, he was acting in obedience to the Father. Well, very good. Let's go on to verses 5 to 6a. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. That is, everything that Moses did testified to a greater reality. Moses, in his life, was pointing to Christ, whom he knew to be infinitely greater than himself. Any study of the law tells us that. The law that Moses gave left us condemned as sinners and reminded us that we needed a Savior. The tabernacle that Moses built spoke of the need to have God dwell among his people. That's why when John wrote, he said that the word now became flesh and tabernacled among us. Whereas the tabernacle in the Old Testament and later, of course, the temple spoke of the symbolic presence of God. Jesus is the presence of God. And he would say, if anyone has seen me, he has seen the Father. And furthermore, the sacrifices that Moses instituted 
they spoke of the reality of the shedding of blood that is required for the forgiveness of sins. But the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sins. They were only a reminder of sins and a reminder of the need of a sacrifice that could take away sins. But Jesus is the perfect sacrifice offered once and for all that actually cleanses the worshiper and makes him or her able to enter into the Holy of Holies. Yeah, everything Moses did as a faithful servant in God's house testified to the coming of Christ. So the difference between the two, between Jesus and Moses, is the difference between a faithful servant and a faithful son. Now the last part of verse 6, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And there's an if that we must not bypass. We are the house of Jesus if we are faithful to Jesus to the end. That is, when the day of trial comes, or when the day of false teaching comes, or when other interests come, interests that might seem to be more important than Jesus, well now, we are his house. If we do not lose confidence in Jesus, that's the mark of the follower of Jesus. We hold our confidence firm until the end. I began by saying the world needs heroes, and we do. But note this, we have a hero who overshadows all other heroes. We have a great man who stands towering over the world's greatest men. We have a faithful man whose faithfulness is the measure of all that is faithful. We have Jesus, and because of him, we would be amiss if we allowed anyone else to take a greater place in our imagination than this one who is the faithful builder of the house of God. Thanks, John. John, why do you think it's so easy for us to replace Jesus with other things in this world? <laughs> yeah, um, I guess we're sinful. <laughs> I think that's the easy answer. I mean, you know, it's true that we, uh, we relish things of this world. We meditate on things of this world. We tell ourselves we want things of this world. We work for things of this world. And when our mindset is so built on the things of this world, uh, the more we do it, we're eclipsing the beauty and the glory and the, the worthiness of Jesus. So it shouldn't surprise us then, should it, that suddenly you know, we're, we're, we're no longer um, you know, viewing Jesus as the hope of our lives. We're somehow wanting to attach that on to everything else that we are. So we need to completely reorient ourselves. We need to despise the things of this world and hold on to the things of Christ. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Priceless Treasure of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada's mission is to cover Canada with the gospel and share God's message across all demographic groups. But fulfilling the mandate of this Bible teaching ministry requires a team effort. The ministry fiscal year end is upon us and will conclude on June 30th. This year we have a faith goal to raise $325,000 by month's end to bring the ministry budget year to a successful close. We're praying for our listeners and partners across the country to join us in reaching this goal. 
So consider joining us this month. Your gift means so much as we strive together to continue to present God's word in truth to the world. To send a gift, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And one last note, thank you in advance for your gracious partnership.